Take your Bibles and turn with me, please, to the book of Ephesians, chapter 5. Ephesians, chapter 5. We're going to start reading this morning in verse 15. So I'd like you to have your Bibles turned there. While you're um, turning there, let me just um, say, you probably know this, but it's a horrible feeling when you're standing up here leading singing and the the lyrics disappear into the sky or they're not there the way they're supposed to be. And it's it's an equally bad feeling in the back watching that happen as we try to press keys on a computer that won't respond as uh, we would wish. But Greg handles these situations with equanimity, and uh, I appreciate that very much. So Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. Uh, hear then what Holy Scripture says. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then I'd like you to skip down to chapter 6, verse 5, if you would, please. Here's what Scripture continues here. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly. As if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them since you know that he is who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. Uh, We are spending these days talking about how the gospel transforms some of our most significant relationships. We've talked a lot about how the gospel works itself out in your marriage, how the gospel works itself out in your relationship between your children. Today we're going to think together about the gospel and your work. Now, uh, work is not something that the church has always uh, addressed very well. Sixty-five years ago, in an essay called Why Work, Dorothy Sayers said this, In nothing has the church so let her hold on reality, so, excuse me, in nothing has the church so lost her hold on reality as in her failure to understand and respect the secular vocation. She has allowed work and religion to become separate departments and then is astonished to find that as a result, the secular work of the world is turned to purely selfish and destructive ends and that the greater part of the world's intelligent workers have become irreligious or at least uninterested in religion. But is it astonishing? It's a great sentence. How can anyone remain interested in a religion which seems to have no concern for nine-tenths of his life? Uh, This is usually how talking about work goes in a church. We read a passage like this and we say, now this is about your work and what you should do is you should work with integrity, you should look for opportunities in your job to talk to people about Jesus Christ, and you should earn money so you can give to God's work. 
It's usually the three points of a sermon on work in, in church. I think, though, what we have failed to do is help people see that what you do during those 40, 50, and 60 hours of, of, of your time that you're at work during the week, that what you do is not something that you, you earn some money to give to God's work. I want to help you see from this text that what you are doing is God's work. Uh, this is a passage that will help us do that. Um, immediately, we have a problem. <laughs> we have a problem immediately because this passage is about slavery. Your, your job may be hard, and, and you may not particularly like it, uh, but you, you're not a slave. Uh, in fact, uh, that's uh, one of the first problems we have in, in taking this text and, and applying it. You're not slaves. And, and the, the other problem is when you think slave, when you hear slave in the Bible, you think something that I think is culturally very different from what Paul was writing about. Our understanding of slavery, because of our history as Americans, is, is very different from what Paul was writing about here. So actually what I want to do is I want to begin this morning with a little cultural background. This is not a history lecture, uh, and, and I'm going to move through this quickly, but there's some facts that you need to know about slavery before we begin uh, talking about this passage. Slavery has existed for uh, thousands of years in human history. In fact, uh, there are still slaves today. Perhaps, according to one article that I read, 30 million slaves in the world still. Over time, slavery has taken different forms. Slavery is always dehumanizing. It is never grand. It's never great. But as an institution, it has varied in its, uh, in how it appears and how it works in a society. Uh, we're most familiar with what we might call chattel slavery because it's the slavery that, that marks our own history. It was race-based. Slaves were provided uh, through kidnapping. It was lifelong. It was an existence of poverty and deprivation. No education, no legal protection, no hope for freedom. This sort of slavery came to an end in the Western world through the efforts of Quakers and evangelical leaders like William Wilberforce and, and John Newton. They identified that slavery as the grievous moral evil that it is and, and was. Now, Roman slavery, the sort of slavery that Paul is writing about here, was different. Usually, Roman slavery lasted about 10 to 15 years, and slaves were freed all the time, usually about the time they reached age 30. In fact, <laughs> there was a period of time where they were freeing so many slaves, owners were, that the emperor had to pass a law that you couldn't free your slaves until they reached age 30. Uh, slaves were educated. Many of them served as doctors or philosophers or teachers. They were skilled laborers. Slavery in Paul's day was not race-based. Most of the slaves uh, that were in the Roman Empire were actually uh, prisoners of war. They were soldiers that had been captured in Roman wars, brought back to Rome. They would serve as slaves for a period of time, 10 to 15 years or so, and then they would be freed, and upon their freedom, they would become full-blown Roman citizens. Uh, some people actually sold themselves into slavery. Slaves could earn money. Slaves had legal rights. Uh, the Old Testament provides laws for slavery. If you read through Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Exodus, uh, and, and slavery in the Old Testament seemed to function somewhat like a welfare system. 
If you find your, found yourself in a dire financial situation and you had no way out, you could sell yourself into slavery for a limited amount of time and exchange for your labor, your new owner would guarantee that you had clothes and, and a house and food and uh, medical care. It was a way to survive when, when, when the rails had fall, uh, when you'd fallen off the rails of your own economic subsistence, you could look to somebody else. They would provide it for you. You'd work for them and they would supply you with the basic things you needed to, to live. And after a few years, you would be free. Um, slavery was not ideal. Slavery has never been ideal. We have records of slaves being abused. But it was not in Paul's day quite like it is in our own history. Now, sometimes critics of the Bible look at verses like this and they say, see, the Bible condones slavery. Maybe you're somebody who's skeptical about Christianity because of passages like this. The Bible condones slavery. Certainly passages like this were used on plantations in the American South. Uh, to keep slaves under control. But, but that's not a fair reading of, of this text. Or maybe there's a related question. Why didn't the Apostle Paul make slavery an issue? Why didn't he make fighting slavery uh, uh, an issue that he was uh, promoting and was, was going after? Why didn't, why didn't he do that? It's, it's a good question. It's a question that we Christians should think about. It's a question we think about when we think about our own role in particular social justice issue. How do followers of Jesus Christ enter the fray when it comes to poverty and racism and immigration? What role do we play in those debates? Now, uh, this is in a forum which I'm going to give you a complete answer to that question. But uh, there are two things that, that I think we should understand about how Christianity stretches itself into the world. How Christianity transforms a society or a culture or a nation. And there's, there's two things to understand. First, the gospel transforms society from the bottom up, not from the top down. The gospel transforms society from the bottom up, not from the, the top down. That, that's Paul's focus. Paul's focus first was on proclaiming the gospel and changing the lives of people. And, and through changed lives, the culture itself was changed. This is what happened in Roman history. Christianity did not change Rome because it took over. And we put Christian dictators on the throne. Some people give that interpretation of Roman history. Constantine became a Christian and then imposed Christianity on the Roman world. In fact, Constantine didn't have much choice. There were so many Christians underneath him. He kind of went along with the flow. Uh, Rodney Stark, if you're interested in this at all, Rodney Stark has written about this in several places. He's worth um, reading. Under Christianity, slavery dies a suffocating death. Paul destroyed slavery by um, creating, by preaching, and creating a culture that was gospel-centered and, and, and thus uh, uh, slavery withered and, and died. Now, we as Christians, because we have the freedom and the right to do it, in our own society should be concerned about who's up at the top. We should vote and we should uh, uh, be concerned about um, what's happening in, in, in the government. But, but we don't vote because we know that whoever's in the Oval Office will transform society. Jesus does that from the bottom up through the gospel. 
Now, secondly, the gospel transforms your circumstances from the inside out, not from the outside in. Paul here does not condone slavery. There's no theological or biblical grounding for slavery in this passage. Do you remember when we were talking about marriage, Paul says, here I want to talk about marriage, and he immediately goes to the gospel. He immediately goes to the cross. And then, then he says, now I want to talk about parents and children, and he goes immediately to God's promises in the Old Testament. He says, now I want to talk about slavery and... He doesn't make that connection. He, he doesn't go to the gospel. He, he doesn't go to the Old Testament. He, he's talking to them in the circumstances they're in, and he is actually after their heart. Now, Paul says, if you can change your external circumstances, you should. Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 7, if you're a slave and you can be free, you should be free. But his chief concern is that you understand that your circumstances are changed from the inside out. In this world, God does not deliver us from every pain or sorrow or loss. There are teachers, I know that, who use the Bible to tell you that that's true. It, it, is, it is not. God does not deliver us from every sorrow, loss, or pain in this world. Instead, what God does is He changes you so that you can endure and thrive and live in this broken world that God has made. Transformation from the inside out. That, I think, is among other reasons. Those two are among other reasons why I don't think Paul gave himself over to fighting slavery. Now, that's important historical background, but it should raise a few more questions in your mind. Here they are. You should ask something like this. How is this passage going to help me? How this passage written to slaves 2,000 years ago. We, we live in a capitalist society after the Industrial Revolution. We're not slaves. How can what Paul wrote to slaves help us in, in what we do? It's a good question. If these words helped slaves, men and women who are living through humiliation and the drudgery and the despair and the pain of slavery, if it helped them, think what it can do for you who are not in that situation. As bad as your job might be, you're a little higher off the ground than these folks. And and if Paul could lift them up, maybe he could help you too. In fact, Studs Terkel, maybe that name rings a bell for some of you, Studs Terkel. If you're looking for baby names, I recommend that. Um, Studs Terkel was a a columnist for years for the Chicago newspapers. And uh, he wrote a book in 1974 called Working. He he interviewed people about their jobs and, and then wrote about it. Listen to how his book starts. This book, being about work, is by its very nature about violence to the spirit as well as to the body. It is about ulcers as well as accidents, about shouting matches as well as fistfights, about nervous breakdowns as well as kicking the dog around. It is about all or beneath all about daily humiliations. To survive the day is triumph enough for the walking wounded among the great many of us. It is about a search, this book is about a search too, he says, for daily meaning as well as for daily bread for recognition as well as cash, for astonishment rather than torpor, in short, for a sort of life rather than a Monday through Friday sort of dying. Perhaps immortality too is part of the quest. To be remembered was the wish, spoken and unspoken, of the heroes and heroines of this book. 
Work is violence, he says. It takes energy and life and hope from us. Even, even for those of us who love our jobs, you might love your job, there's still a price to be paid in the work that you do. It's still a task, a laborious, toilsome task. And if what Paul can hear, wrote here can help slaves, it, it can help you too. Now, the question is then, how? How does it help? If, if you look at the text here with me in verse 5, you see Paul makes one basic command, obey your masters. And then he does what commentator Clinton Arnold identifies as six reasons or six ways in which we obey. Out of respect and fear, with sincerity, like you would obey Christ, not just to make a good impression, with goodwill, and knowing you ultimately belong to Christ, those six. I think there's a lot of overlap in there. Um, I think that in, in there, I want to summarize what Paul says in these four verses with two sentences, two ways that the gospel transforms our work. The first is a what, what to do, and the second is a why, why God transforms our work. Now, let's begin with the what. Uh, simply, the Bible commands, serve your employer wholeheartedly. Serve your employer wholeheartedly with everything you have. I mentioned a minute ago this word pair here in verse 5, respect and fear. Those two words together uh, show up in in maybe your translation of the Bible in Philippians 2 where it says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That is is the, the attitude you take toward living out what God has done in your life. Take that same attitude and work it out in, in your work, in your job. Uh, the other words he uses, other, other phrases, he says in verse 5, obey with uh, sincerity of heart, internally, truly, really, o- obey, do, do what they ask. Take your boss's agenda and make it your agenda. Their plan for the day is your plan for the day. I know that, that our weekends vary, but, but do, you, do you wake up on Saturday morning Sometimes and think to yourself, today is mine. I can do my agenda. I can get what I want accomplished. And nobody, nobody's going to tell me what to do today. And some of you have a long list. And boy, you get at it. If you're, if you're, like, if you're someone who has a list and you like to do your list, sometimes um, you know, Friday morning the alarm might go off at 6 because you've got to get, it, get up and go to work and you hit the snooze 14 times. But on Saturday, you're up at 5.30 gladly because it's your day, your agenda. Paul says, take that same attitude that you have towards your agenda and, and, and make your boss's agenda your agenda. Serve wholeheartedly and that you serve consistently when they're watching you and when they're not watching you. How does your work change when your boss isn't around? Have you figured out how much or how little you have to do uh, if he or she is gone? Uh, Do you know how much you have to do to make it look like you were really productive? I read this week as a man on, on a plane. He travels a lot for business. And he was astounded on this plane at the treatment that the flight attendants were giving. They were the nicest flight attendants of any plane he'd ever been on. They were uh, kind, they were gracious, they were proactive. And he said to one of the attendants, he said, boy, you are doing a great job today. 
She said, thank you very much, but really you should go thank that woman sitting in 12B. She's in charge of all the flight attendants for our airline, and today she's on the plane. Uh, In other words, I'm not doing this for you, buddy. The boss is in the room. Hmm. Uh, Paul writes very specifically, verse 7, serve wholeheartedly. You probably have some objections to these commands. I, I, I think I, you could. Paul obviously has never met my boss, right? Um, you don't know, Paul, what I have to put up with. My boss is incompetent and I spend half of my life covering for him. She's a shrew and she belittles me. You don't know what I have to do for him, for her. I never get any credit. I never get any appreciation. And I do menial, useless tasks. I am unappreciated. I'm not fairly compensated. I am just counting down the days until I retire. And I have 9,135 left. Serve wholeheartedly, Paul. (laughs) I don't know what you're thinking, but that's not going to happen for me. Can, Can I point out to you that the competence or the compassion or the integrity of your boss is is not an issue in this passage, nor how menial your job is. It's not a part of the text. Remember, in fact, he's talking to slaves. Who do you think in the house would do the menial work? He's not writing to highly paid, greatly respected business professionals. These are not people who are getting annual bonuses with six figures. They're not making marks in their careers. They are working, by and large, for hugely unappreciative employers. They're slaves. They have no expectations of how they're going to be treated. There must be, there must be something extraordinary going on in this passage for Paul to expect them to do this as slaves, serve wholeheartedly. How does God expect you to serve your boss wholeheartedly? I think the power to do the what of these verses comes from the why of these verses. Why should you serve wholeheartedly? Here's point number two. Serve your employer under God's authority. Serve your employer under God's authority. Now, what does that mean? Notice here and how many times in this passage Paul refers to God himself or to Christ in this, uh, this, these verses about work. Verse 5, serve just as you would obey Christ, um, as, as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God, serving the Lord. Verse 8, he says, the Lord will reward you. God's name is awful lot in this slavery passage, isn't it? I think it's passages like this that help us understand the Christian view of vocation. Now, the word vocation means calling. And during the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther transformed our understanding of what it means to have a vocation. Up to the Reformation, and still for many people today, um, there's a divide, a divide between sacred work and secular work. Uh, there is work, sacred work, that people like me, that people like uh, me do. Uh, I'm a pastor, or full-time missionaries, or people involved in full-time ministry. We are doing God's work. And then there's work for the rest of you. Okay? Um, and, and your challenge, if, if you're over here, I'm, you really got to work hard. I'm doing God's work. And you're just, well, you got to figure out some way to make this work matter. 
You gotta, in some way, um, maybe, I don't know, you can take God to work somehow. Maybe you can figure it out. You know, if you leave tracks in the workroom, then maybe your work will matter. I, I, you know, maybe. There was this, gr- this great uh, divide, and Martin Luther shattered that divide between sacred and secular work. He did it on the basis of the, of the study of the Lord's Prayer. We're, we're going to look at that in just a minute, but he, here's a summary of what he said in defining Christian vocation. Here's, here's Christian vocation. God is at work through every occupation to provide for all he has made. God is at work through every occupation to provide for all He has made. Whatever you do, regardless of your job, you are a part of God's good plan under His authority as Creator to provide for all He has made. And and I want to encourage you to see your work as the means that God uses to meet the needs of others. I'm going to illustrate this from the Lord's Prayer. All right. Um, one of the ways that our Lord taught us to pray is by saying, give us this day our daily bread. Right. Uh, this morning, I had an English muffin for breakfast. I have an English muffin for breakfast almost every day. I pray for bread. I pray for English muffin bread. And God provides. How does God provide for my daily bread? He does not make the bread appear miraculously in my cupboard. I don't open the door, find an empty cupboard, close the door and look at heaven and say, English muffins, and open the door and there it is. This is not Captain Picard on the Star Trek Enterprise saying, Earl Grey tea hot. Okay, that's not the way this works. So God uses means. Well, like what? Well, (laughs) there was a farmer who planted seed that grew into wheat And he probably did it with a tractor, so there was a tractor manufacturer. And what they make tractors out of steel, so some there there was a miner who got the iron ore out of the ground, and a steel plant worker that that refined it, and someone built the tractor factory. Uh, Someone with a trade, an electrician, uh, maybe a carpenter, a plumber. The tractor has tires. Oh, there's a rubber plant somewhere, right? And a rubber plant farmer. Now, but we could go farther, right, with the tractor plant manufacturer, but let, let's talk to the farmer here. He plants, and he harvests the wheat, and it gets taken to a mill. How, how, how does it get to the mill? Well, by a truck. And a truck driver needs oil, for gas. So there was a geologist and an oil driller and an oil refiner and a gas station owner. And if he traveled on the roads, there was a paver. One time, this driver, he got sick, so he had to go to the doctor. If he's not healthy, he's not going to deliver the wheat that is going to become my English muffin. So he needs a hospital and a nurse and a doctor and a hospital administrator. Uh, Now, you know, behind all those people, there is a banker and a lawyer to work out land purchases and lease agreements. And there's got to be health insurance people and, and commercial insurance and truck insurance, and we could go on. My English muffin comes in a little cardboard box. You know how they come, those little sort of cardboard box. You know, you know what that means. A lumberjack, a paper mill. <laughs> it's, got, it's got writing on it, this little cardboard. So there's a printer. And the English muffins come in a plastic bag, so there's more oil refining for us. And you know that the wheat is not the only ingredient in my English muffin. Uh, so someone has to mine the salt that goes in it, too, and the, and the other ingredients. We buy the English muffins at the grocery store. So there's a grocery store owner and a cashier and a bag boy. My dear wife, she buys them. She's in this chain, right? 
She pays with a credit card, more plastic, manufacturing, and banking, and computers, lots and lots of computers. Uh, the grocery store handles a lot of food, like you, the bread aisles over here, but over here there's like the meat section, and there's raw chicken and hamburger. That just breeds germs like crazy, all that stuff over there. So the grocery store owner hires a janitor to clean the grocery store, because if the janitor doesn't come and mop the floor, the grocery store is going to become toxic, and you're going to get a deadly disease if you go in there to buy your English muffin. I'm never going to have breakfast. So there is a chemist. And an engineer, who makes the mops and the brooms? Uh, And to get there, she drives on roads, more pavers, people to make traffic signals, and electricity suppliers, and government officials to write traffic laws. And I usually put peanut butter and jelly on my English muffins. So there is a peanut farmer and a grape farmer and someone to refine sugar and grow sugar cane. How many people do you think made it possible for me to eat breakfast? 10,000? God, give me my daily bread, and 10,000 people get going, right? He has in line a provision of of 10,000 people. It's astounding that my English muffin is so cheap. And because I know that my English muffin has come through the provision of God's great plan, it makes me grateful for farmers and pavers and plumbers and janitors and grocery store owners and engineers and chemists and miners and lumberjacks and printers. Isn't God good in giving me my breakfast every day? I pray for daily bread, and and he puts 10,000 people at work. Now, I know, I know that in this chain, there's, there's some scoundrels, right? There's people who don't care if, if I'm satisfied with my breakfast. In fact, they're not even really thinking about me when they're driving their tractors or their trucks or paving the roads. Uh, in fact, some of them, they're, they're, they try to cheat the system. And, and the owner of the English Muffin Baking Company, he's really greedy. And he's not, he's not baking English muffins to make me happy. He's baking English muffins because he wants more money. The wonder of God in his wisdom, though, is that in a free economy, the more money he wants, the better it is for me, right? Because he'll make the English muffins cheaper or better. So I'll buy his and not somebody else's English muffins. God is triumphant over the greed of my English muffin baker, uh, English muffin factory, baker factory, the guy who bakes them. He's, he's <laughs> triumphant over that man's greed to get me my breakfast. Thank you, God, that as we meet today in this room, you provided uh, uh, a heating and air conditioning company to keep us uh, comfortable in in the room. And and you you, you, uh, called uh, Ed Hare to lay carpet so we can walk on this space. And and you gave Bruce Souter skill to build doors so that we have doors that open and close in the the auditorium. And and, uh, you you put a a paving company in Alan Nelson's hands so you could pave the parking lot so we could drive on it. And thank you, God, for... Uh, Jeff Bittner and Ryan Krause who serve in the military to defend our right to worship on Sundays when when we gather together. And you made God window manufacturers and doctors and pharmacists uh, and and to give us medicine when when we're sick so we can meet together. How how long is your list for which you're thankful for God? Where are you in this chain of God's provision here? You're, you're somewhere in it. Maybe you're at the beginning because you work for schools or colleges that, that train people. 
Or maybe you work for a dental office that keep people's mouths in good repair so that they can work. Or you work for a printer or a banker or a golf course operator so that they can be refreshed and stay sane while they're working. Because these slaves, even these slaves, were part of God's good plan to provide for all He has made. They were serving Christ. They were serving God's purposes under His authority. And so are you. Where are you in the chain? Doing God's work. Fulfilling your vocation so that God's purposes can be done. Are, are you in the chain somewhere in my breakfast? God, God gave me daily bread through the work that you do. And I'm grateful. Dorothy Sayers, I mentioned her a few minutes ago, in her essay about work, she, she also wrote about the episode in Acts chapter 6 where the apostles said um, there, there was a, an argument in the church. People weren't being fed properly. And the apostles said, now we can't leave uh, praying and, and preaching to serve tables. And Dorothy Sayers says, the other group, the people who serve the meals, should equally say, we can't give up preparing meals to preach and pray. This is what God has called us to do. We've got to get this work done. Serving your employer under God's authority, you're fulfilling God's purposes. And it means that there are no occupations that are worthless or useless. We, we tend to treat people that way. Um, some jobs, don't you? you? You evaluate jobs on an economic scale. This is the world that, that we live in. The person who cleans the CEO's office is not paid as much as the CEO. And in some regards, that makes economic sense. But be careful of thinking that the value of what you do under God is evaluated by Him only on an economic sense or an economic scale. It is clear that that is not what happens. The text says that the Lord rewards us regardless of our occupation, whether we're slave or free. There is no favoritism with God. I am inclined to look at people and and, and based on on the the job, I I can evaluate you. That is not God's scale at all. Tim Keller says that the default position of the human heart is is self-justification and we are always evaluating people based on their jobs and, and what they do. You're attempted to do that all the time, to evaluate the worth of people based on their work. Are, are you ever uh, smug in a fast food restaurant when you're standing there ordering and the person behind it makes a mistake or something like that and, and you think to yourself, this is why you're at McDonald's because you can't do anything right? Or are you ever inclined to, when, when you see one of them uh, pushing a mop into the bathroom of a, of a fast food restaurant and you think, oh, I'm grateful I don't have that job. Man, that person. Bet they can't wait to get out of here. Are you ever inclined to think to yourself, oh, look at my job. I got a, I got a promotion. I'm pretty impressive here. <laughs> you should see I, um, my company now here. I'm making lots of money with my job and I'm moving on up the sky and I am better off than those people. This is a self-justification and every single one of us falls into that trap. 
We do it because we're looking for something to feel significant about. We're looking for something to give us value and happiness. And some of you do it because you got a great job. And some of you do it because, well, you're better than at least somebody else in the work that you do. We're looking for this sense of, of justification, this, this sense of, of, of value that is supposed to come from the fact that we're made in God's image and we have a relationship with Him. But actually, the Bible, the Bible tells us that the reason that we are looking for this self-justification is because naturally we have cut ourselves off from our Creator who made us. And, and there is no satisfaction naturally for us being made in God's image. This is what a heart that is alienated from God does. It's, it's part of our sinful condition. And one of the implications and understanding that we are all under God, being used of God to provide for what He made, is, is seeing working people as those through whom, whether they appreciate it or not, whether they know it or not, God is, is working. They're God's provision for your life. And, and seeing, them that, seeing them that way, seeing them as, as, as uh, expressions of the common grace of God enables you to treat them with goodwill. Actually, there's even a more important reason here that we turn from the temptation to value people the same way our economic value system values them. There's there's a more important reason for us who are Christians. All of this slave and servant language picks out a tune. Paul is, is playing notes of a tune that should sound very familiar to us. It was a tune that our Lord himself sang. It, this is part of our DNA as followers of Christ. This is a well-known scene in the Gospel of John. Jesus gets off the table, up off the table, and he wraps a towel around himself, and he washes the disciples' feet. That's gross. It's like taking a, a bucket into a fast food restaurant bathroom. This is slave labor. This is dirty, unappreciated work. And, and Jesus gets up from the table, he sits back down, and he says to the men, Do you understand what I have done for you? He said, you call me teacher and Lord, and, and that's the right thing to call me because that is what I am. Now, now you've seen me, your teacher and Lord, wash your feet. You should wash one another's feet. I've given you an example. I have set you an example that you should do what I have done to you. I tell you the truth, no servant of mine is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. You know these things. Now you're blessed if you do them. Jesus said that on on the night, on the precipice of his ultimate service. He he was, uh, on this night in in John, he was about to serve the disciples in a way that they could not even imagine. He put on a, a towel to wash their feet. The Bible says that he put on flesh in order to wash away our sins. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh who did not come to be served, but to serve. How? By giving His life for us on the cross, paying the penalty for our sins, rising again, offering life and forgiveness to all who will receive them by faith. One of the ways that you can tell that message has gotten down into your heart, one of the ways that you can tell how how deeply it's sunk in, is by your response to these commands in Ephesians 6. Serve wholeheartedly 
I, I can because I have been served by Jesus Christ in ways beyond that, my even imagining. This is what he asks. Your service is one of the ways that God's grace overflows in your life. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you and, and we are grateful to you for today. And thankful to you for uh, the opportunity we have to meet together uh, with one another and consider what your word says. Father, I know that in this room there are uh, men and women. We are in a variety of places. Uh, some of us uh, retired and just glad for it. Some of us uh, feel great joy in the work that we do. Many, many of us are just overwhelmed and some of us just hate it. Uh, Father, I, I pray that you would help us. You, you spoke through the Apostle Paul to slaves who were sitting in, in that church in Ephesus. Would you, by these same words and by your Spirit, transform us as, as we go to work? S- some will be at work this afternoon. Um, most of us will, will start afresh tomorrow. So we're, we're, uh, w- would you transform us so that we can serve out of sincerity. Thank you that we're in the chain. Grant to us that we might find gladness in the big picture of your provision for all you have made. Because we're serving Jesus Christ in what we do, your purposes, help us to serve joyfully, wholeheartedly, sincerely. I'm grateful to you for the men and women who do represent you really well at work who are part of our church. And I pray that you would give them um, opportunities to speak of the hope that is in them, that, that drives them on towards what is sometimes drudgery work. Thank you, Father, for the privilege that we have of serving you as um, plumbers and electricians and roofers and nurses and um, salon owners and, and, and welders and floor layers and Thank you that we, we can serve you in, in all those capacities and, and more, more than we can even name now. We give you thanks. In Christ's name, amen.